Hello, and welcome to the return of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. We've been away unexpectedly, so apologies. We had a few technical issues, which scuppered our plan to be with you every Monday in May. But never mind, because now it's Jaffa's for June. There you go, Jaffa's in June. There you are. There are three of us today. Joining us once more is Tyler Adams. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. So Tyler, you suggested today's film. Yes, The League of Gentlemen from 1960, not to be confused with the film spin-off from the League of Gentlemen TV series. Gary had never seen it before, I believe. Tilt had. And it's just a classic and it's a very interesting film in terms of the way that it portrays life for men who are trying to reintegrate into civilian life after being in the army. And it's a light thriller, a caper film, I suppose you'd call it. Good story, good performances all around. I want to give a shout out to Mike Scott. I don't know if this was his theory or theory of a friend of his. He talks sometimes about the Sates, that early 80s that was very like the 70s. And I think every decade in recent memory where we were in a position to examine cultural changes in terms of decades, every decade in the second half of the 20th century had that. One of these days I might go further into my theory of the 290s. 88 to 93 and 94 to 99, the 290s. But anyway. This is definitely a post-Ealing British film. It's the 60s. On the, yeah, on the cusp <laughs> of that sort of grittier British film that you started seeing in the sort of early 60s. It would make a fascinating comparison, really, if we thought about it to do the two films at once, with the Italian job. It's flip and cynical. It's a heist film, but... It's grounded in a 50s view of the military, a 50s view of Britain, and it's breaking through that. By the time of the Italian job, it's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, we're all, we're all a bit dodgy, and we all know that. We're all in it for ourselves. This is a self-preservation society. This is very much right. These are officers and gentlemen. You probably automatically respect them, or at least until recently, that was the natural mindset. And these are all guys from grand old war movies and who would go on to make probably a few more grand old war movies the characters in this are depicted as apart from maybe jack hawkins but the, the rest of them are, are vaguely sort of disreputable out of step perhaps with the older ones certainly and maybe have certain degree of sort of bitterness if you like grievance and they all had a good war most of them and now they're sort of in some cases you know peddling porn to make a living it was described i was reading about it, it described as a war film set in peacetime, which I thought was an interesting description for it. But it was certainly, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a groundbreaking film in its time. There's a certain distance that they're not putting between the characters and the reputation. I'm just suddenly thinking of Brighton Rock. We all seen Brighton Rock? No. Well, well, there's a thing at the beginning going, this is set in that dark time between the wars, but Brighton now is very nice. And it's perfectly safe. <laughs> This, it's not kind of like, these are a few bad apples. It's like, yeah, these are the guys who fought the war for us. Yeah, and slightly down at heel now, particularly Roger Lipsy. I mean, obviously we'll get into the characters in a bit, but a lot of them are struggling to get on with the world. And I mean, okay, it's 15 years after the war, but they're still sort of getting used to life on Civvy Street again, aren't they? And also there's the erosion of respect and deference for the ruling classes. We did suspect there's that scene where 
Norman Bird's having his dinner and we did suspect that the television might have been tuned to that commercial ITA service of recent years and that's when it all started to go wrong <laughs> you know oh boy comes on and before you know it you've got like, like punk rockers like Max Bygrapes and what have you and yeah everything's just oh they're just standard Norman Bird's father-in-law's watching a trashy soap opera isn't he the girl <laughs> in the iron lung she's in an iron lung and, and poor old Norman Bird just sitting there eating his dinner and just just letting it all wash over him really <laughs> I am ashamed to admit, no, I've not seen Brighton Rock. I've not seen Lady Killers. I've not seen the Lavender Hill mob. This is a disgrace. And I don't know, I'm, I'm clearly the weak link in this podcast this week. Okay, so I was coming to this fresh. I'm sure that, I mean, you said you'd seen this many a time, Tyler, you've seen this many a time. So this is the first time I've ever seen this. Thankfully, because you know, like sometimes when if a film is always passed you by each time it's been on the tv eventually you sort of hear bits and pieces about it you hear spoilers and what have you so thankfully i didn't know anything about this i had no spoilers i never accidentally stumbled across the last five minutes of on bbc2 tuning in for the snooker one evening or anything like that so we'll go through are we going to have basically we're not going to try and have a spoiler free review are we i mean we're just going to discuss the plot from start to finish here so if you've not seen it then pause watch it come back jack hawkins I could not shift this idea that he looks like Stephen Moffat throughout this. I think there was probably a part of me that actually thought at one point, it's not him, is it? No, but <laughs> it's one hell of a cast. I like films like this that have got... Okay, I'm going to make a ridiculous comparison here, but you remember there was a film a few years back, I think it was called, was it called The Expendables or something like that? Sylvester Stallone, was it? And that was like... Yes, yes. All the star names. I've never seen the film, but it was all, basically, it was like all the star names and what have you. And I can sort of see what they're doing, you know, creating an ensemble piece like that. But also because you've got like basically six or seven star names of sort of equal billing, then you know that they're all going to have to have their time. They're all going to have to have their bit on screen where their characters to the fore, they get to elaborate in the backstory and what have you. Whereas this feels a lot nicer because it's an ensemble piece, but it, it's not, there aren't really any domineering characters. You've got a mix of different character types, but it's not like you've got seven star names that are all competing for the Oscar at the end of it, so they're all sort of trying to nudge each other off screen. I think the collection of people they've got works really well. well, I think Jack Hawkins and Richard Attenborough were the two biggest stars in it at the time. The rest were more sort of, well, Roger Livesey, I guess, to a degree, but the rest were more sort of character actors, weren't they? Nigel Patrick I was very impressed by, and I've never really seen Nigel Patrick in in anything else, but he played that slightly seedy, very... Louche. Louche is the word, yeah. Yeah, bit of an old sort of roué who's, who's ended up living in the, in the YMCA because of gambling debts. But I've never really seen him in anything else. I mean, have you seen him in anything, Till? Can't think of anything. I probably have. But if I have, he's not made much of an impact. He's got that kind of little verbal tick where he, he calls everyone old darling, which <laughs> kind of grates after a while. But then it goes with the character, of course. And, of course, we've got Brian Forbes, who adapted the, the novel into the screenplay. Terence Alexander, the original Malcolm from Teddy and June. I'm still, if anybody does know of any film or TV show in which Terence Alexander, Tim Barrett and John Quayle all appear, ideally all at the same time on the screen, please let me know because I just want to see the gallering of the Malcolms. Were they in the New Statesman together? Ooh, that's possible. I'll need to check that out. I'll ask George. He would, he would know that. Norman Bird, who I nominated whilst watching it for recasting for the role of Blakey. Can we also, we, we can all imagine that, can we? Norman Bird as Blakey. I think that's feasible. I think he would have carried it off, but it would have been a different 
character, he would have come across a little bit more vulnerable. He's got an air of sadness about him, <laughs> constantly being thwarted by life. We've got Kieran Moore, and his character's backstory is sort of alluded to, but they don't go into quite as much detail with his. No, he's being blackmailed for homosexual practices. He's running a, a gym or something like that. and Yeah, he uh, looked like a, he was like a trainer. Yeah. I do like how they handled that, though. How they get? I'm assuming they were up against the censorship problem. If anybody can remember what year the film Victim came out, I think that was a big watershed. That was about 62. Right. So I'm assuming it's just like we can't say it, but it's really just done with the line, there are thrills and thrills. And then a shot of him massaging the guy's back and that's it. <laughs> but then you can't say that the film treats homosexuality completely with a straight bat. Because there's uh, some very sort of cat yes, goings on. Major Lex, he's not thrilled about having to share a room with him. Oh, I'm thinking more of Oliver Reed. <laughs> oh, yes. He's not necessarily gay. He's just a chorus boy. Well, he's auditioning for Babes in the Wood. It is very Julian and Sandy, that whole sort of the way that he comes in and the mincing posture and all the rest of it and the voice. I've never seen this film with an audience. And I regret that because I have to say, I imagine seeing this with an audience the moment Oliver Reed walks in <laughs> and then puts his hand on his hip. That must get a big reaction. <laughs> of course, we've got a uh, supporting cast for this. We've got Nanette Newman, for example, and obviously, Tyler, we've got David Lodge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, who made this? AF? I can't remember the name of the... The film company, I think they had an angry call from William Hartnell's agent. (laughs) (laughs) You had a film that needed a sergeant major and you made it in Britain and no Bill Hartnell, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Because they needed a part for David Lodge. There's an excuse for police everywhere in this. We could have made the Sergeant Brown trilogy into a tetralogy. (laughs) (laughs) Tetralogy, didn't they make Mike and Angelo? One of those independent companies, weren't they? If you're aware of Tetra films, then that joke works. If you're not, then it doesn't. But anyway, uh, by the way, I'll throw this out to yourself, Tyler, because I already asked Tilt about this. Recasting suggestion, the first Doctor Who, Roger Livesey. Mm, definitely. You can definitely see it. Definitely. They couldn't afford him, surely. Yeah, but what did he do after this? Did he do much in the 60s, Roger Livesey? He would have been on the stage, wouldn't he? Oh, he's in The Entertainer. It's not a case of they couldn't have got him for TV. You couldn't actually sort of say, uh, do you want to do 42 weeks a year? For BBC television. <laughs> there is a story I've heard that when William Hartnell was leaving, one of the people they called was Trevor Howard. Okay. Whose reaction was, um, I'm Trevor Howard. <laughs> Why are you asking me to do 42 weeks a year on BBC television? For- you were about to swear just then. No, I was, I was trying to think of a suitable word for not enough money for Trevor Howard. And <laughs> I'm sure there's some terms. I would like to think that there was actually a very specific term in the OED for that very situation. (laughs) What did we all think of the initial premise? Because you actually said till early on, you said this one thing about this whole (laughs) scheme that I'm not too keen on. And then I asked you right at the end of the film, I said, well, what was it then? And you said, it's the halved notes. So you think that you can take in 10 sell a tape together fivers 
to well, the bank. As long as you've got both halves, if you take them into the bank and they can match them, then yeah, I don't see any reason why not. But then there's seven different people going to seven different banks in London with half fivers. Surely somebody somewhere might notice this weird little pattern. If, I mean, okay, does it make it look more suspicious or less if all seven of them turn up to the same bank at the same time in a queue? And then they try and make out that this was some mass accident involving a guillotine. <laughs> that, that all of the notes just happened to be in a big pile. And there you are. It happened to be just the other week in Poundland. I got a new five pound, well, I didn't say new, I mean a five pound note that I just got from the bank. And I took it out of my wallet and it went torn in half. But they had to take it. Well, let's go before the plot kicks in to the opening moments of the film. Because I think this movie captures a very, very small, specific moment in time. I'm not sure what you call the initial boundary. I want to say the Suez crisis, but that feels kind of packed to just point that the Suez crisis as the definitive moment when everybody thinks British Empire is a bit rubbish, really. It's, it's not coming back. We don't want another war. War is not glorious. Yeah, I think the Suez crisis was was the first time that the British public realised that the, the office of the Prime Minister was fallible, really. and. Yeah, and it was the beginning of obviously the establishment starting to take a few knocks. Thing is, my next boundary is Bond. Just there comes a point when Britain feels a bit more confident, and it's partially swinging London, which of course is driven by the Beatles. So there's class mobility and all that kind of stuff. But there is also, and in Bond, you've got that. Well, Britain, Britannia still rules the waves in some ways. We've got style. We've it's the Cold War. It's just that opening bit of the film when you see Jack Hawkins peep out from under a manhole cover, go down, hide, and then lifts up the manhole cover, climbs out of the sewer, dressed in a dinner suit, and strolls off to his Rolls Royce. And it's clearly meant to be weird and a wild juxtaposition. But of course, years later, we've got. James Bond and is unzipping his wetsuit and he's wearing a dinner suit under that. Bizarre things being done by suave men in dinner suits becomes normal and it becomes part of this 60s swinging swagger. Yeah, and then he walks over to a Rolls Royce and, and drives off. But it was, what was he doing? Was he under the bank or something? Is that what he was doing? He was doing something that looks really cool <laughs> to begin the movie. It has a plot explanation, but it just sets out its stall. It's an English gentleman crawling out of a sewer. <laughs> <laughs> and the symbolism, yeah. This film, like you say, it's post-Suez, obviously, but it's pre-loosening of moral standards and before the pill and before the Beatles. And so it's kind of in that sort of boring, dull period. What did Larkin say? What was that line by Larkin that you quoted previously? Sexual intercourse began in 1963 between the end of the Chatterley ban. And the Beatles' first LP. Yeah, so it's it's around the time of the sort of Chatterley trial, or at least Chatterley was being talked about. But it certainly wasn't like you know uh, a safe little Ealing comedy where everyone knew their place and you know there was this sort of. Well, you say this, but it could have been an Ealing comedy. For a start, Ealing is an incredibly left-wing film studio. Uh, Passport to Pimlico is all about the unrestricted free market. <laughs> Don't laugh. There's a book called Shepherd and Babylon by Matthew Sweet. I highly recommend and he goes on about how people who talk about Ealing films in terms of Little England and a nostalgic view of the past haven't paid attention to them. Kind Hearts and Coronets which is all about Dennis Price murdering his way through the establishment. And Lady Killers of course is murdering uh, an old lady yeah yeah of course. So 
an Ealing version of the League of Gentlemen would be slightly different. I think if you want to say it is the characters in the Lady Killers are more obviously bad apples in a nice world, a world that's generally running along the right lines. Whereas the League of Gentlemen has that indication that the corruption is actually not everywhere, but occupies a larger space than previously thought. Can I just throw in, because you've mentioned the Lady Killers there, can I just throw in a quick recasting suggestion? But it's not a recasting suggestion, it's a casting suggestion. Tyler, what do you think of Peter Sellers being in the League of Gentlemen? I'm trying to think which part he would play. And I think the only one he could play really would be the Richard Attenborough character. But I think a lot of this film gets its energy from having recognisable British actors of a certain type. Though Attenborough always had a nice line in Slimy Villains. Another bit in Shepherd and Babylon, Matthew Sweet talks about how brilliant Attenborough is as out-and-out monsters. He describes Attenborough's Christie as having eyes like hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> I watched that film again recently, and he's fantastic in that. He really is. Uh, yeah, very underrated, I think, in terms of he's seen as... He's obviously remembered more as a director now, isn't he, than as an actor. I think he's pretty good in this. The whole cast really is as well, aren't they? They're all of equal strength. So we've got this initial plot device of the, the, the book, and it looks like the, the book itself doesn't look like it's much more cut above what Hancock would have been reading on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Trashy American crime thriller with a plot that Jack Hawkins thinks they could appropriate. That initial meeting of them in the, the swanky place, I don't know, I, I just got the impression that if that was a film today, I think that they'd probably rush to get to the point. I think that they probably drop the, the initial sort of dull reaction of everybody. And then it's only when Jack Hawkins actually reveals how much he knows about everybody that he gets them on board. I like little slow plot development like that. I suspect that a more recent film would want to cut to the chase and would just be straight in there. I think a more recent film would also load it with backstory, though. So you'd see Hyde doing his research. You'd probably get some sort of framing device where the speech he makes at the dinner would actually be him talking into a dictaphone. So that bit at the beginning where we just we cut from life to life to life, that would be framed with Hyde's thumbnail portrait of each one. Yeah, and then cut to the chase at the dinner. He just says, this is what I propose. Yeah. There's actually a bit missing from the film. I don't know if it was in the script and not filmed or if it was filmed and just cut for timing reasons. But at the end of that dinner, Norman Bird actually reaches for the wine glass and says, after that, I need a drink. Right. <laughs> Ah, oh, right, because he does, he does take a drink at the end, doesn't he? It's like his redemption. We're dancing around it and we're going to be fine with spoilers. So the whole point of Norman Bird's character is that he was head of a bomb disposal squad, got drunk, and a bomb disposal went wrong and the men under him died. So he's portrayed as possibly the least scummy. It's a wrong thing to do, but he's, we see him, he's drinking milk. Whereas apparently in 1960, normally if you have a sandwich, you'd have beer. But then at the end, he's making jokes about explosives. So there's that sense that he's had some sort of breakthrough simply by robbing a bank. I think he's just relieved to be able to escape from his wife, the wife that won't shut up, the old man, you know. I don't quite understand what Terence Alexander's deal is. What, What are the embarrassing mess bills? What does embarrassing mess bills mean that I don't understand? He was one of the most intriguing characters, though, because he was very um, understated. He was obviously a cuckold. He was his wife, Nanette Newman, who's in the bath with lots of strategically placed bubbles going on, is teasing him and, and being openly, being very open with him about, you know, 
the various men that she's obviously carrying on with. He's very sort of browbeaten. But yeah, it doesn't make it clear exactly what his crime was other than, yeah, something to do with money, mess bills. Even when he left at the end of the film, when he when he picked up a suitcase and he sort of saluted Hawkins, he still had that air of sadness about him. So I think he was he was one of the, the best characters in this. There's nobody lets the side down, is there? The only bit of poor acting is for plot reasons, which is Norman Bird's Irish accent drifting into um, Spike Milligan Pakistani in places. But I actually also like that Kieran Moore's Irish accent's a bit wobbly, and he's Irish. That's fantastic that he just ever so slightly overdoes the Shore and Bigora, just the wrong side. So when they've got to get the ammo from the barracks, first of all, I suggested, and I don't think this was a suggestion which you entirely accepted, Till, but I suggested that the, the entire cast of the army game should have been involved in this scene because that would have been a nice crossover. Agent. Well, you, I mean, you could have had Britsing and Snudge there and all sorts, you know, going on, Harry Fowler, and yeah, you could have had lots of fun with that. But no, no, that, that, that's, that's probably gone too far. But the closest you would get to having... Uh, a regular face from a sitcom and not even a regular face but just like a face that turns up in sitcom to sitcom and so on is Norman Rossington and of course we've also got Champagne and Roses himself yeah Gerald Harper I wonder where he was in his career at this point because we're six years before Adam Adamant nine years before Hadley just trying to think what I'd seen him in around I mean he's in a Gideon's way as a high-ranking police officer whose marriage is falling apart because he's so precise yeah this i guess this was the kind of thing that would be offered to him at the time slightly bumbling important authority figures who are out of their depth for whatever reason and of course he's only the second in command of the whole place so you actually get a heist film inside the heist film we have the tension of them stealing the arms we know they're going to do it but it's like getting us in practice for right this is what watching a lieutenant colonel hide operation is like I thought it was quite clever the way that they affected the slight Irish accents to obviously give the impression that it was an IRA operation. And it would have been around this time that the IRA were beginning to make the headlines, I guess, raiding arms depots and things like that. But Roger Livesey, what was his name? Mycroft, was obviously portraying the senior officer in this, this ruse and sort of lording it over, to a certain degree, relishing lording it over Hyde and race. I just thought his performance in that was excellent. Do you know what? This is a really ridiculous suggestion but now that i think about this that whole scene in the barracks it sort of reminds me in a way of you know those hour-long lauren hardy films where it's basically a 40-minute story and they've tacked on a restaging of an old two-wheeler at the start to to build it up to an hour you could do that with this if you had to sort of fit this into like an hour and a half slot you could just say you know we'll we'll take care of the ammo don't worry about that and then just uh, before you know it's there and no you just get rid of robert coot at the end get rid of the old duffer at the end bunny warren i mean I, i enjoyed that but you know that was unnecessary his appearance i think this only just occurred to me and should have occurred to me before of course is national service is still a thing This would be very, very familiar to a very large chunk of the audience. Jokes about army catering will hit home, including my dad, who was would have been on national service around about this time. He was it was sort of one of the last. If he'd been born like a year later, he would have missed it. No, just saying. I think national service did finish around nineteen fifty-eight, fifty-nine, didn't it? I think it was sixty-ish. Hang on a minute. You you make some devastatingly intelligent, penetrating point, and I'll look it up. 
I would also like to point out this is the first time I've ever seen a motorcycle and sidecar that wasn't portrayed as broken down and just a piece of old tat because the, the two people that I associate with motorcycles and sidecars are George out of George and Mildred and Arthur from On the Buses and in both instances they're well past their prime, they look like death traps and covered in rust and so on, whereas the one in this the, from the police officer was a very nice looking model, it looked like it was brand new at the production line that day, smashing <laughs> I, I quite like the idea of actually having a ride in a sidecar a motorcycle, but they're probably not all that easy to get these days, are they? Like you say, you mentioned that the opening titles of George and Mildred went, <laughs> just makes me feel that you'd be left sitting there. <laughs> it's like a tandem. I've always been intrigued by the idea of riding a tandem, but never been brave enough to attempt it. National Service was gradually phased out from 1957. The last call-ups were in November 1960. Call-ups officially ended on the 31st of December 1960, and the last national serviceman left in May 1963. What do we all think of the the actual execution itself? I mean, in terms of... It's pretty subtle, isn't it? I mean, you, you've got, obviously, the kid scribbling down the number plate and what have you, but aside from that, it's not like you've got really any obvious clues that have been left for you to sort of have at the back of your mind as all this is going off. Well, that's the thing of, of a bit of a lost Britain. A kid writing down number plates and somebody doing a hobby like that without getting it in the neck for being a boring little squirt. At what point did anything like that stop being acceptable? Did everybody just collectively get meaner and start picking on guys not doing any harm? Admittedly, the number plate spotter is eight years old, but I think even an eight-year-old, if a much, much later movie, there'd be some little comment from the policeman. Right, if Jack Hawkins had been not an amateur criminal, but say part of a, a major crime ring. Because the police basically tell Jack Hawkins right at the end without trying to be too much of a spoiler, but they tell him the name of the boy. <laughs> so Billy Miles, eight-year-old boy, <laughs> who you saw across the road, he was the one who gave you away. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it was still that instinctive trust of the English officer, maybe. <laughs> no, yeah, well, you know what I'm saying. Being very generous with the information there in terms of the, you know, the police officer. Now we could have been in witness protection program <laughs> these days. But actually, I did think at one point, you know, the first sort of chink in the armour, so to speak, is when the policeman turns up at the warehouse. And I said to yourself, Till, if this had been not all that many years later, it's, it's perfectly feasible to imagine that, that Jack Hawkins would have just said, hey, look over there, and then just put a bullet through his head. Depending on the, on the type of film, it would have changed how serious or otherwise that was depicted. But either way, they would have thought, problem here, policeman snooping around, yeah, needs to be dealt with. Right then, so. here's the thing that needs to be dealt with. None of us have read the book. There was a radio adaptation some years ago. Gary, get on the genome. It's Radio 4. And as far as I can tell, that must have been a faithful adaptation of the book because it was so different in tone from the film. Maybe it was playing fast and loose with the tone because they wanted to differentiate for themselves from the film. But that was dead serious. It wasn't funny. I can't remember it well enough, but my memory is it was just really the tone of things. It wasn't done with that flip style. December 2000. John Bolland's crime thriller is probably best known in its classic British film version. Mike Walker's radio adaptation returns to the darker, more psychological approach of the novel. So that's from 2000. Radio 4. So, yeah. Who wants a spoiler then? I think I know the spoiler. 
I think this was something that I picked up because I was listening to the audio commentary, Brian Forbes. And I think at the end of the book, Hyde commits suicide. In the radio version, the little boy is blown up. Oh, right. I think there's a situation where at least one of the gang kills at least one of the others. If not, they all start going around killing each other. And having listened to the radio play, which I did, I may not have retained that much of it. I think it works better as a comedy. Yeah, it's not a laugh-out-loud comedy, obviously. It's a light comedy. Well, it's a light thriller. It's a caper. The um, army camp scene, no, that had a lot of humour in it. But, you know, like you say, the actual heist itself was carried off with, with great efficiency. There were no laughs in that. It was, you know, it's kind of a film that's got humorous bits in it. But I wouldn't say it's a an out-and-out comedy. I have to be honest and say that my enjoyment of it, it wasn't impaired in any way, but my appreciation for it, particularly the heist scene, was slightly impaired because I've only just recently seen Crooks Anonymous with Leslie Phillips and Wilfred Hyde White. And whilst that scene was going on, I was thinking, Stanley Baxter's going to turn up at any point. He's going to be one of these people in, in this bank. He's going to be the tailor behind the counter, disguised. And he's going to say, give it up, lads. You know, come on and you know, be strong. Don't, don't weaken now. Yeah, the, the entire thing, then just like the two films fold into one, which would have been fascinating. I'm not quite sure how they would have done that, but that would have been interesting. One thing, by the way, did, did I entirely misunderstand this? Because it's always like, this is just me. There's always, when I watch a film, there's always like one bit that I'm sort of scratching my head over at the, the end of it and thinking, what was going on there? Am I right in thinking that Race turned up to the initial meeting? Obviously, Race and Hyde knew each other beforehand, didn't they? But they didn't let on. Is that right? No. No? No, that's just to show off how damned, unflappable, suave and brilliant Race is. Absolutely. But then Race leaves after Hyde leaves the room, leaves the meeting, leaves the lunch. Well, that, that was because he's the first one to leave. And then the next thing you know, the two of them are at the house and they just seem yep. very pally. It was almost as if they'd met before. No, but the point is, and I thought this was a bit ludicrous, is that I think the point is that Race is trying to tail him, he's trying to follow him, but they're, they're virtually bumper to bumper. Well, I get the sense that there's a big chunk missing. There must be a scene missing of Riss subtly following him in home, and there's a brief allusion to, sorry for leading you around the houses. So it looks like maybe what, what had happened is Hyde realises he's not going to shake this guy, so he puts his foot on the gas, hoping the potholes will take care, because Riss mentions the potholes nearly wrecked his suspension. It doesn't happen, so plot hole that you can fill in with your mind. Well, maybe that's what he should have said. He said, sorry about the plot holes. <laughs> <laughs> A race has got that sort of easy familiarity with Hyde, whereupon he immediately puts the penny on and starts doing the washing up and calling him old darling and all the rest of it. He's obviously, they're of that sort of class, the officer class, where they kind of don't need to go through the sort of getting to know each other. It's all very much matter of fact. Are we just going to start quoting jokes at each other? Because I think there's a particular bit in that scene that my memory serves Nanette Newman and Brian Forbes highlight the bit with the painting. Oh, yeah, uh, Deborah Carr. Yes. <laughs> what film is that from? Is it Colonel Blimp? Yeah, Colonel Blimp. Yeah. Gary, that was a prop painting of Deborah Carr taken from the film, the Colonel Blimp film, which stood in as a portrait of Hyde's wife. <laughs> right. And that's Roger Lipsy, isn't it, Colonel Blimp? Yeah. But just the mention of, is that your wife? Yes. She dead. Oh, sorry to say the bitch is still going strong. <laughs> <laughs> which... Now we could write a whole Tumblr post about how problematic the use of language is, but 
1960 might have been like a small bomb going on. That would have had them sitting up in their seats, wouldn't it? That would have drawn an audible gasp. So, okay, I quite like the use of the expression soap flakes in this because you don't hear that enough these days. I don't think you hear it at all. But also, you might agree with me on this. When they're all working in the warehouse, doing the bits and pieces, and I think they've got to test the gas masks as well. And Roger Livesey pulls off his gas mask and as his hair is slightly unkempt for a moment. And I just thought, that's not right. Roger Livesey's hair should not be unkempt. You know, the, no, don't, don't do that. Look, if we're just going to go off road now and start talking about actors of that generation and that type. Now, not wishing to take any happiness out of Andre Morell's life. What if Roger Livesey had married John Greenwood? What would their kids have sounded like? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Jack Hawkins, during this, of course, was diagnosed with throat cancer. Do you notice that his voice becomes notably gruffer? I didn't realise it was during this. I thought it was later. Right. Well, no, but apparently Hawkins was, was diagnosed, and so they had to halt filming for a couple of days while he got some form of treatment for it. And he came back, and his but his voice was, I don't know what, minor operation or whatever it was, but he came back and his voice was a bit gruffer. And then, of course, not long after, I guess, his, his subsequent films, he was being dubbed, wasn't he? There's a uh, mystery and imagination uh, ABC anthology series. I think there's one of those with him in, and he's not dubbed. They don't have the equipment, and I think he sounds kind of wrecked. Was he in Zulu? Was it Zulu that he was in? Yes. Was, yeah, because I think it was, again, prepared to be wrong on this, but I believe it was Charles Gray dubbed his voice. Yeah, Charles Gray definitely dubbed him in something. That's... Well, I think it's time to talk about Officer Class. It was a little thing we mentioned in Dinner Ladies about how if you made Dinner Ladies in the US, Stan would be more aggressive because uh, there'd just be something slightly different. There's just a different sense of the British Army because the guy above you is not just a sergeant major who happens to have pips on his shoulder. It's something they don't really explore. But is that indication of how out of his depth Gerald Harper appears compared to Norman Rossington and David Lodge? He's gone to the right schools and got his commission. It's the difference between an officer and a soldier. And I guess our heroes, our anti-heroes are, for the most part, all officers and soldiers. Well, could we start a little theory then about half-Colonel Hyde, that maybe he was a ranker? He was a what? He worked his way up the ranks. Okay. He didn't just walk in. Despite the fact that he's got all the airs and graces of an officer, maybe the reason he's forced into early retirement after 25 years is that he didn't go to Eaton and Sandhurst. Yes, yes, yes. So he's, he's a little bit of resentment there, class resentment, whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's just because I like putting class resentment in everything. Of course, they're not saying that. Of course, that's not a theme. It's If it is, it'd be in the book. The book probably tells us a lot more about Hyde's backstory. Okay, now, in any film which involves some sort of great uh, heist or anything like that, I'm always sort of thinking, are they going to get away with it? Now, obviously, that's what you're supposed to think as a viewer, but it's only within films of maybe, I would say, perhaps something around about the, sort of the, the era of the Sweeney where the idea that the villain could actually get away with it was something that you could even countenance at all. Whereas, generally speaking, you still don't really expect it. You don't really expect to see any kind of film or drama where a villain goes in, has bad deed in mind, carries out bad deed, Scarper gets away with it and everything's fine. There's still, even in 2016, there's still something really, I think, unsatisfying about that. I think it would still put the viewer ill at ease to some extent. Now, I'm watching this and I'm thinking... Okay, the heist has gone well. There's not been any problem from that angle, as as far as we're aware. And just for a moment, I start to think, when they all start disappearing with their suitcases, I start thinking, are they? 
are they going to get away with it? And then I started thinking, okay, well, I don't think it's very likely, but that that then got me thinking, what would be the circumstances in 1960 in which you could portray the, the, the villains in such a way that the audience is entirely on their side if they manage to pull off the heist and then Scarper? Could you have done it at all? The Italian job has got an ambiguous ending, isn't it? Could they have done something like that, do you think, and got away with it? I think there were rules in place. I think the BBFC wouldn't have let them get away with it. And I think that's why you get the ending on the Italian job. Some people say it was meant to be a sequel hook. But I think also, even then, you couldn't end the film with them getting away and having a good time. Can we think of any famous British heist films where they get away with it at the end? Before 1970. Without killing each other. Yeah. I'm thinking two-way stretch, no. Do they? What happens in two-way stretch? They kind of do. Do you remember the end of Two Way Stretch? No, and it's only a few months ago that I watched it. They end up in a harem. <laughs> Isn't that another one of the standard endings is that they don't get away with it, but it's like they're on their next job. Something like that, yeah. Harem girl outfits on, sort of ogling some massive big fat diamond that some sultan's cradling. I think it was definitely a rule in the US. It's harder to tell because I'm not sure there was a written down production code in the same way. In the UK, as there was in the US, but I think there were rules against getting away with it. I know it's post nineteen seventy, but uh, Peter Usnoff in Hot Millions. Anybody remember what happens there? I've got some faint idea that he might actually have got away with it, but then that's circa seventy three, isn't it? I'm struggling to think of any film at all now, uh, which the core group of villains actually get away with it without a situation where perhaps they've turned on each other and maybe one of them's got away. What happens to Charles Lytton in the first Pink Panther film? Ah, uh, yeah, well, yes. David Niven. Yes, that's that's true. That's a good point because he manages to set up Cluzo, and yes, that's a good point. But of course, Cluzo is—it's got a happyish ending because Cluzo is sort of rather flattered that this idea that anybody could think that he was the Pink Panther. But yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. But I think he manages to evade justice, but I don't think he actually gets away with the attempt to steal the, the booty. Yes, mm. yeah. One of the standard endings is you get away from being arrested, but you don't get the loot. Here's a film, The Killing, Stanley Kubrick. Have you seen that? No. 56, 57. I only watched it fairly recently. Sterling Hayden, is that the guy? Sterling Hayden? And it's quite a dark kind of heist film. He ends up with a suitcase full of $50 bills or whatever, gets to the airport and I think I'm, I might be misremembering this, but basically he gets to the airport. It looks like he's going to get away with it. And the, he gets too close to the propeller of a plane. I think it sort of blows the suitcase out of his hand and it goes, hits the ground and obviously opens and all the dollar bills go flying everywhere. I thought he was going to get just minced. <laughs> was Adam Faith running in place nearby? <laughs> I'm even thinking now, okay, here's a slight variation on it. You attempt to get away with your ill-gotten gains and you end up getting a little bit of what you were after but not all of it i can think of a couple of instances i'm thinking of to haul and back only fools and horses where dell uh, you know i wouldn't spoil exactly how it, how it happens but basically he gets a couple of diamonds which he hadn't bargained for in a nice way because everybody else around him is far more villainous than he is Okay, ill-gotten gains, but not quite what was being laid out on the table. There's also a Caroline Quinton drama from a few years ago. I think it's called Hot Money, and it's about this group of workers within the Bank of England who plan this sort of heist of of getting the used notes that are intended to go in the furnace. And 
they do get caught and I think that they end up doing time to an extent but they still manage to get a little bit squirreled away. So there's almost like a bargaining tool with the viewer where if the villain is seen as there were circumstances which were you know understandable and so on and they weren't a career criminal then give them something to sweeten the pill. But I still really struggle to think of anything where there is one episode of the Sweeney actually. Yes there is one episode of the Sweeney with John Hart and George Cole and John Hart has this plan in mind and he executes it to perfection and scarpers and evades justice. And I remember so I've been... Sw- yeah, that's slightly- telly. Different rules. <laughs> I think I, I also think with films like this, the viewer satisfaction comes from obviously seeing how the heist is executed and then I guess how they're unmasked, how they're found. If they just did the heist and then cleared off to a desert island or whatever, then there's not that sort of resolution really. I'm sure this has been done already, but there's definitely scope for some sort of story which involves a criminal act being carried out and not not even the criminal having guilt afterwards, but just because of the circumstances where they have to scarper and go and live in the sun somewhere. If that actually ended up being their curse in a way. They had this money, but they couldn't really enjoy it. They couldn't really do what they wanted to do. They get homesick to an extent and so on. Isn't that Buster Edwards? Isn't that Magwitch? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Great expectations, yeah. Right, okay. Good, good. Well, I thought that, that I was onto a winner there. I thought I just created something. But, uh, D- but... Dickens was there before you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I'm not saying it's better to lose out to Dickens and Phil Collins, but yeah, I don't mind who got there first. It's all right. So we're talking about how the book ends. There are two more books which pick up off from the film. After we'd watched the film, I was telling Gary about how who framed Roger Rabbit was such a success that there's a book by the author of the original book and the original book was called Who Censored Roger Rabbit and the sequel goes ignore that first book this book takes off from where the film left off so there are two more League of Gentlemen books The Gentleman Reform and The Gentleman at Large Gentleman at Sea Gentleman Down Under (laughs) Gentleman on the Go Just on that point very quickly obviously I've read all the original Sherlock Holmes stories and you know the novels and you see the the TV tie-in editions that they have I mean you know the ones that have got Cumberbatch and Freeman on the cover but are they the original stories or are they sort of novelizations of the adaptations if you know what I mean let me check this meanwhile just quickly mention isn't there a novelization of the film The Spy Who Loved Me there's definitely one of the Bond films where they had to put out a novelization of the film because there was no resemblance. I mean, that's partially because Fleming would not allow The Spy Who Loved Me to be adapted. He'd just allow the title to be sold, but not the actual story. Why was that? It was a flop. It was an experiment. The Spy Who Loved Me is actually a first-person narrative by the Bond girl. It's interesting. I mean, it's written from a woman's point of view by a guy with some interesting sexual politics. But he's trying to reach beyond his grasp, and the critical reaction was not positive. And hence the title. Of course, Spy Love Me. Okay. Okay, here we are then. The book is called Sherlock, The Essential Arthur Conan Doyle Adventures. And then with the added subtitle, selected and introduced by Mark Gattis and Stephen Moffat. <laughs> right, okay. But supposedly, yeah, but, but look at that. It looks like it's a real thing. Yeah. Which of these League of Gentlemen, which of these members do we think is most likely to turn up 
in what was that group called till the, the one that was given charles bind all the problems in 77 crash yeah that's it yeah which one's going to turn up in there terence alexander definitely <laughs> he's the most sad and resentful of the lot so he's probably going to found a mercenary organization <laughs> richard todd he could have been in this he's going to blow it all in the first 12 months well, I would have fought Lexi. I think that Lexi's going to blow on Wayne Woman and and Butchery Cars. What's Livesey going to do? What's Mycroft? There's a weird bit that I still don't understand where he's talking with Lexi about going to a Billy Graham thing. I said, you see the call, you went forward. And he goes, yes, I always went forward. It, close up on Livesey, something significant's been said. I've never quite understood. What does I always went forward mean? And he looks in this weird, mournful way. It's not even like he's confessing something. Yeah, I always went forward and picked a few pockets. I'm missing something there. Okay, so is there scope? Obviously there is plenty of scope, but it didn't happen on the big screen. You mentioned about the books. Nobody really wants to see this remade in 2017, do we? With, with, but who with, do you get? Oh, well, that, that's it, because it doesn't matter who you get. It's going to be bloody awful anyway. But, I mean, it is raw surprise that it hasn't happened yet, isn't it? In the commentary with Brian Forbes, and he seemed to suggest, and, and bear in mind he's been dead a good 10 years or something, so I, I don't know when, that, when it was recorded, but he was saying that whether because he's a screenwriter, whether he has rights to it or had rights to it, but he said he was getting approached regularly, you know, every few months from when the film was released, he was getting approached by people wanting to remake it for the American market, you know, make, remake it in America, remake it wherever. I'm sure there's a larger degree of exaggeration going on there, but he seemed to imply that he had the rights and he didn't want anyone to remake it. It'd be nice if it was just allowed to stand on its own. And it's a pity he didn't own the rights to the name. <laughs> he hated the fact that Gators and Co. used the name. He did. Clearly annoyed by it, and he alluded to it in this commentary. Which was uncomfortable because Mark Gatiss was actually chairing the commentary. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hugely enjoyed this. Tyler, I now need suggestions from yourself, and I'm going to follow up these suggestions. I would like you, if you can, could you name maybe half a dozen films that I should go off and seek out that are similar to this? Similar in just overall style, appearance, actors, whatever it may be. School for Scoundrels? Oh, okay. yes. Right. Similar to this, I mean, you've already mentioned Lavender Hill Mob and, and that. Rotten to the Core, Anton Rogers, 1965. I haven't seen that in a very long time, but I just remember that. It's a black and white 60s crime thing. A part originally intended for Peter Sellers. Oh, right. And it's on DVD. There's a DVD I saw. I think Stanley Baker stars in it called Robbery. And I think it's a 60s film. It's one of those, you know, when you go on Amazon and it says other people bought this and it was, you know, The League of Gentlemen. I'd like to get that and have a look at that. Um, but I'm trying to think of other films that I've seen that are similar in tone to this. I have to have a think. While we're on the subject of Peter Sellers, like I said before, two-way stretch, wrong arm of the law, even. A bit more slapstick, a bit more sort of trouser-dropping, you know, humour, if you like. Truth. That's fantastic. That's a great film. Uh, that's quite dark. It's got Terry Thomas in it and Dennis Price, of course. Dennis Price doing the usual Dennis Price performance. <laughs> Peter Sellers playing a variety show artiste. Got a big TV star who's quite conveniently a very good impersonator. And he gets blackmailed. And this is from memory, by the way, but he, he gets blackmailed by Dennis Price. And various other people get blackmailed by Dennis Price. And they kind of band together to try and 
deal with price, but it gives Sellers a, an opportunity to showcase a lot of his impersonations and impressions and disguises and things like that. But th- that's a very good film. I just mentioned, apparently, according to Wikipedia, Charles Gray regularly dubbed Jack Hawkins, including Theatre of Blood. Vincent Price murders his way through light entertainment Britain. Right, well, just finally, I've put League of Gentlemen into Amazon, and quite right, Tyler, it does suggest School for Scoundrels as a frequently bought with this item. But also we've got, ah, that's clever, they've split it into two different categories. So now we've got items that customers view after buying this item and also customers also watched on Amazon Video. Aha. So we've got Jack Hawkins, we've got The Cruel Sea, the one that got away, and Richard Attenborough and all one private's progress. Is that tied in with I'm Alright Jack? Yeah, it is. I, I'm Alright Jack is a direct sequel, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. That'd be an interesting thing. To, do you remember a million years ago, Channel 4 had that season Beyond Ealing? It's a flaming arch about it. Like, <laughs> like Ealing was something you needed to get over. <laughs> but it'd be interesting to talk about the Bolting Brothers as a strange little bridge between the Ealing sensibility and the carry-on sensibility. I'm also being recommended here The Blue Lamp, Doc Bogart and Jack Warner. Ah! Does, that's Dixon of Doc Green Gets Murdered. Is that it? Yes. We really need to talk about Dixon of Doc Green, about the television show as opposed to The Blue Lamp. I mean, The Blue Lamp is this downbeat affair. Okay, it is about the police being good and honest and doing their job. And of course, it's written by a great big commie. (laughs) But the fact that then Dixon of Doc Green is not about Jack Warner being gunned down partway through, it would have been. We we need to look at Dixon of Doc Green and see how true is it that it's starchy and fifties and father knows best, and how true is it that it might represent other things that don't fit into a tidy. I know we overuse the word narrative, but that's what's often pushed on any examination of stuff. Let's not use the word culture, just stuff generally. Documentaries they all lead you by the hand down a particular path, which is fine. We all do it, but not even saying, but by the way, there's a little there's a little more to this than we're telling you. No, it's all and then and then and then and then and then and then the office. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God we arrived here. Oh man. Imagine living in the past. Oh you got your skull, wouldn't you? But we made it safely to the 21st century. Something's fine. Well, Tyler, I'm very pleased that you suggested League of Gentlemen. Very much enjoyed it. I will be very happy to watch any other recommendations that you have. Maybe next time we'll do maybe like a triple pack. You know, like you get out of the petrol station. Well, you would have done when we were selling VHS tapes. We've got a list of things that we're going to come to. And we are talking with our regular contributors. But right now, I just don't want to say this will happen and then have it not happen. But with the old manner of things are in the works, we're going to have some more jukeboxes soon. And yes, the Come Club will be back. And follow us, Jaffas for Proust, on Twitter, and you'll find out about all the wonderful things that we're getting up to. And of course, if you want to hear any other top podcasts, go to podnose.com and you can find loads of them on there. Okay, so thank you very much, chaps. It's been lovely chatting, all things League of Gentlemen. And like we say, we're not going to make any promises but we'll be back it's not not like we're saying we're not gonna make any promises we may or may not come back we'll be back within a matter of like a couple of weeks or so but we don't know exactly when yet so stay tuned to jaffas for proust on twitter to find out exactly when we'll be back and we're also on facebook as well so just search for us on there and in the meantime tyler thank you again thank you tilt goodbye and this is gary saying thank you very much indeed for listening to jaffa Gates for proust 